0: Hello, and welcome back to Talking Tomlet. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Azban, here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our DAF today, Masachet Yuma, DAF, Ayn Gimel, page 73. So this DAF has a lot of fun information about the Kohen Gadol, um, and also another Kohen, which I think I knew about, but didn't understand how prominent they were. So first, let's start with the Kohen Gadol. One of the things that's mentioned here on this DAF, I'm not going to read it exactly inside, is sort of all the exceptions for the Kohen Gadol. Right. Um, that essentially, um, there's this very long b'risa and the b'risa dis- that's on Amod Aleph. And, you know, there's a bunch of halachot, particularly around mourning, uh, that the coin does because of his function and his place and his role does not actually have to do. So he doesn't sort of tear his clothes the right way, um, must keep his hair, you know, cut the right way. Does not even make himself tummy for family members. We know that a regular kohen is allowed to make themselves tummy for these seven relatives that you would sit shiva for, um, and so we sort of see this elevated status that the kohen gadol has. Um, but one of the things that gets talked about here that I was interested in is the um, is the kohen gadol who is appointed for battle, and this seems to be sort of this other. Uh, important priestly function that Kohanim could have. It was an anointed position, um, and it doesn't really have as catchy of a name as the Kohen Gadol, right? It's just called the, uh, uh, you know, the Meshuach Melchama, right? The anointed for battle. Um, And the discussion, the way it comes up here is because there's a discussion about whether or not the Mashuach Melchama wears the same eight clothes, um, eight vestments, big day as the Kohen Dadel. And one of the uh, things that's put out here is maybe he doesn't assume mi- e'va. Because like the Kohen Gadel will be like, it's a little not so nice that like the Mashuach Melchama is going to wear the same thing. Um, and at the end of this very long b'risa, it sort of goes through certain halachot about the Kohen uh, Mashuach, right? And so what does it say? Kulane no melchama. All of these laws that were mentioned previously, right, certain things, pieces, uh, the different laws of who the Kohen Gadzal can marry or not marry, or the exceptions to mourning, right? We basically say all do not apply to the Mashuach melchama. ha'murim Except for five things that are listed Um, in the uh, Torah itself. And this is in Vayikra, chapter 21, verses 10 to 15, which really discusses all the laws of the Kohen Gadol itself. Um, And when we get to the Gemara in Horayot, that's where they'll sort of learn out how some of these laws apply to the Mashuach Milchama. But the description initially comes from the Torah itself, uh, just about the Kohen Gadol. And it's interesting to see That sort of the Mashuach Melchama does not have sort of the same uh, Torah Shabbat, you know, actual descriptive verses in the Torah itself. So when we get to Horaya, we'll we'll see what this was about. And what are those five? Um, Loporea, right? Horaya, right? He does not leave his hair uh, sort of uncut uh, or to grow long while he's mourning. uh, Viloporeim, right? He doesn't uh, rip his garment. Below mitame kuvad he's also not allowed to contaminate himself or make himself tame for relatives. al he has to marry a virgin. U'mizuhar almana, and he it is he is prohibited from marrying a widow. U'machzir et aruteh adds one, which is just as the kohen gadol. When the kohen gadol dies, anybody who was in a city of refuge in near miklat is freed. According to Rabbi Yehuda, that's also true of the Mashuach Melchama, which again shows, I think, what an elevated status he had. But the Chachamim say that that's uh, not true. And this is uh, Mishnah, actually, uh, in Makot, so we'll see that as well. So I, I was just taken by the whole concept of the Mashiach I, When we learn about Kohanim and everything that goes on in the Beit HaMikdash, we know that there was a coin who sort of went out with them to battle but I never sort of thought of it as this very formal appointed kohen. Um, and here on this staff, it really becomes clear. It's a very formal appointment.
1: Um, I think also we don't, I, I, we think about the Kohen Gadol in the, co, in the context of Yom Kippur, right? We think about Kohanim in general in the context of the Avoda, except for that story about Shimonat Sadiq going out to, to or, or whatever Kohen Gadol it might've been, to go out to see Alexander the Great, I feel like we don't think about them leaving the Beta Macdash. So the fact that here we've got a Kohen who's dressed in the office, so to speak, of the Kohen Gadol, so to speak, right? And is going out to lead the war, I feel like, oh my, right? This is, it's a a whole different, well, battlefield, pardon me, right? The idea that the Kohen plays a role and and it kind of makes sense in the idea that any any war that Bnei Yisrael are involved in, at least theoretically, should be a milchemet mitzvah. That there should be a recognition that there's a mitzvah behind it, that God is involved, which means that it makes sense that the kohen should be there as, you know, the the pinnacle of service to God. Or again, not the kohen gadol, but here a kohen who's dressed as the kohen gadol for the purpose of being the mashuach milchama. But on the other hand, it's really I don't know, a little unnerving to think of this peace role. I mean, I think of Kohanim as the the role of making peace from the um between the um and God going out to war.
0: Uh yeah, I, I understand why it's a formal role, right? I think that that is all true. But it's interesting to sort of see this role take place where it's not sort of explicitly mentioned in the Torah itself. It's more we just see the Kohen go going, but it doesn't have like its own devoted pursuit.
1: Right. I think also we see it maybe a little bit in the Shmuel, for Shmuel, a little bit, or at least like if you read really carefully, you can find different roles besides the warriors who are out to war. Um, And I think this was something that happened in the ancient ancient world that when armies went out to fight, they also brought their I mean, there may be Ovedev Arzara, but they bring their priests with them to make sure that they're, you know, appeasing their gods on the battlefield type of thing. So again, this is not that. This is not that. But but the fact that there is a religious role, a religious um, identity playing a role on the battlefield kind of makes sense, even though I still find it disconcerting.
0: Uh, I totally agree with that. So I think now we're going to move on to the next super fun topic. I thought it was fun, at least on the staff. You're
1: going to be super fun. Well, we've got that we're in Vitumim. So on the one hand, it's super fun. On the other hand, it's also like incredibly serious because this is the means by which B'nai Israel could actually, I guess, make demands or questions to, to investigate what they should be doing from God. So urm v'tumim, technically, right, this is, I want to say it's the board, it's the, it's the breastplate that has the stones, right, that the Kohen gadol would even wear, right, and then the question is how do you, how do you consult? Right? How do you ask? How do you consult the Urim Vitumim? How can you ask a question that you're going to get an answer from God directly? Meaning, without a Navi, just in this way, through this um, I don't know what to call it. A supercomputer. Meaning, it's a, it's a physical object that was supposed to provide answers. HaSho'el panav klape panav klape So what happens? The person who has a question, who has a query, for God, stands with his face, to the one who is being asked, meaning the Kohen Gadol or the or the Mashuach Melchama, either one, and then the person who is asked, that again would be the Kohen Gadol or the Mashuach Melchama, turns his face so that he's facing the shechina, which is, in fact, the Urim V'tumim. So you have like um, the supplicant or the query questioner turning to the person and the person to the Kohen, and the Kohen turns to the Urim V'tumim, um, which again where you have in that in that device, again, I don't have a proper term for it, um, except for that it's the Yeram V'tumim, um, the, the name of God, Shema Mepurash of God, is found in this box, so to speak, right? And he looks towards it, HaSho'el ko amar So the Kohen said, I'm sorry, the questioner says, he asks this question let's say should i go the example here is ar dilfa should i go after this troop meaning in the wars in in sefer Shmuel, this is Paraklamid, the 30th chapter there should we should we go into this battle um, and the and the nishal, the kohen will answer thus says god Allah vatslaf you know go up and succeed so that that's how you get an answer ribhudomar ein sarikhomar ko Hashem. Rabbi Huna, it's so interesting. The difference between we're going to talk about what's happening in the time of the Navi versus the Gemara's discussion of how the Urm Vitumim would be asked. Rabbi Huda says, you don't need to say ko Amar Hashem, right? Those are extra words because obviously you're talking about the Urm Vitumim. It's going to be a message from Hashem. All he had to say was go up and succeed. It's clear that it's not coming from the Kohen himself. He's repeating what he understood from the Urm Vitumim. So then we've got some, uh, um decorum right how, etiquette what he how do you angelical you don't ask loudly because what happens he stands before Elazar HaKohim. this one is this verse is from Barah. he stands before Elazar HaKohim, and he Elazar HaKohim, is going to ask for him the question namely what's going to be from the Lord to him lo mihar her he also should not simply keep his question in his heart. Meaning, he needs to articulate it out loud. <inaudible> because, the, and again, we've got a verse from Numbers. It says, you know, he's going to ask him. <inaudible> the same way that Khana in her tefillah, in safer, again, in Sefer Shmuel, she moves her mouth. I mean, she moves her lips, even though no sound comes out. She is still articulating and somehow enunciating the word she wants to say, um, okay, so this, I mean, in this case, I suppose the questioner can ask the question without the Kohen knowing, I'm, I am guess, and then the Orem will still give the answer and the Kohen will, re, will relay the answer to the person asking. And then, you don't ask about two matters at the same time, Right? Ask one question and you get an answer. And then you could ask a second question and get an answer. <speaking in Hebrew> and if he asks about two matters at the same time, and he's only going to get an answer about one of them, right? Then he's going to get an answer about the first one. <speaking in Hebrew> um, he's only going to get one answer, and it's going to be about the first question. <speaking in Hebrew> and we've got a verse that describes this situation. <speaking in Hebrew> Meaning again, they ask Batumim, what about these Balei um, these men of Ki'ilah? You know, what's going to happen? Will Shaul come down? And the answer is Hashem says he will come down. He said, one second, you said you could only be, it's only going to answer the first one, which is exactly the. The conundrum between how the Gemara is going to line this up and say, well, we've got a very strict rule about you ask two questions, you're only going to get an answer about the first question and not the second one. But in this case, when David, there there were two questions that were asked, namely, you know, what about the men of Keilah and what about Shaul? And the answer was about Shaul and not about the men of Keilah. So, The Gemara answers that David asked his questions out of order, and he got the answer in order. I mean, he should have really asked about Shaul first, and then he then that's why he got the answer about Shaul first. So then he goes back and he asks again about Anshe Kila and then god says they will they will yeskiru they will deliver you meaning the narrative in sefer shmuel does exactly this where there's two questions the second one is asked the second one is answered first because oops david the asked his questions in the wrong order and the proof of that of course is that the question is answered in the order that it is answered so then david realizes he better go back and ask that first question first so that he can I mean ask that first question again so that he can get the second answer And then lastly, and then I'm going to turn this over to you, I think, Yordina. What happens if you have an urgent matter, right? And you need two questions and you need the two answers right away. And you can't follow this protocol, right? This business of getting, asking, getting an answer and asking, getting the second answer. So then we've got, again, we've got a model in the way David turns to God and says, shall I go after this, these troops? Will I overtake them? And Hashem says, yes, go. You will overtake them. You will surely rescue, you know, whatever's going on there in Sefer Shmuel. Again, that one, they, we're still in Pereklamet. So the point there is that we're using David HaMelech and his handling of turning to God as a beacon and a guidance during war to know how we, too, should approach the Urnvitumim.
0: So the next piece of this that I think is interesting, and then we'll sort of discuss it all, is, you know, Ketza seed how is it done? Rabbi Yochan Omer both So he says the letters would sort of protrude. So in other words, on the Urnvitumim, there were certain letters or words um, inscribed, and then somehow those letters would come, you know, would make themselves more visible in some sort of way. Raishlucky Shomer Mitsdar Darfot. Raishlki says they would sort of join, uh, they would join uh together um, in, in in some way, um, or they would sort of rearrange themselves, which is seems even more miraculous. Um, and then the Gemara goes on, but sadi. So uh the word sadi was not there. So sorry, just to go back. So the name of on each one of the stones was sort of uh was etched in. One of the names of the twelve tribes, um, and so that's how you get, you know, the twelve tones, uh, the twelve stones there. So for the name Shimon, for example, right, or Levi, or Yehuda, uh, some of those letters would either like, you know, protrude or they would combine in some way, and that's how you would read it. But if you go through all the letters of all of the twelve tribes, there's no Tsadi in there. So Amar of Shmuel bar Yitzchak. Avram Yitzchak Yaakov Ketiv Sham. So he says no. Also, the, the words Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov were somehow there. But it's interesting. It doesn't say how or how it was. Vahalo Ketiv Tate, right? The letter Tate, t- t- it's not there either. Amaravacha Bar Yaakov. Ravacha Bar says, Shiv Te Yushirin Ketive. So the words Shiv Te Yushirin, tribes of Yeshurin, uh, was also inscribed there somewhere. Because um, that's another name for B'nai Yisrael. So uh, what's very clear to me here is I don't think they really knew how it worked or what was written on it. It's so vague, this part, right? Like it doesn't really give a lot of detail. And when we think about where they do give detail, you know, how many, what was the Beit HaMikdash? How far apart is this? How did things work? It's not surprising they don't know the detail in this, but it's really clear that it's, it's, it's just vague to everybody here.
1: Um, I, I think that they knew, right? Meaning I, I, this may be a tautology, right? But the way it's described in the Navi and the way the Gemara is describing the way it was used in the Navi means that, and, and we know this, right? They turn to the Umvitumim often enough that even though we don't really have a full answer of what's going on there, there's great confidence that the answer is real from Hashem and and that it, that they understand it right we're not told like and then they puzzled over what this meaning could possibly be right God said yes you will get deliverance you know like that's pretty direct so i i feel like we don't know how it worked we still don't know how it worked but i feel like but they did and that that gives me some level of confidence in understanding exactly how it worked even though I don't understand how it worked
0: but um, one other thing
1: yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know
0: i mean just by the fact that we know there were other things or some of the other machlokas we have over, you know, like, I'm always struck by the one with their one stand or two stands for the blood of the par and the blood of the seir. I, yeah, I, I I guess the question is, are they purposefully keeping it vague or is it vague because they didn't know?
1: Okay, that's a fair question. The one thing I just want to make clear, I don't think I can make it clear either because also we don't have pictures and and I don't really understand exactly how this works either. Too much of that is unknown to us. But the Urm bitumim, Right, is I would say part of the Khoshan. Right, the Khoshan is translated as the breastplate. The breastplate is where we've got all these stones that you described, right? And then the Urmatumim is seems to be part of this breastplate that, that the breastplate itself is attached to the ephod. The ephod is that very colorful um, woven a- apron. Right, And then this is how they would do this divination or or whatever the right term would be to to reach out to God. So where it is, how it is, how you can derive via the stones that are in the breastplate, this is where we have the questions.
0: Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this tap and some of his mysteries on our talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.